I invite you to open your scriptures to the book of Matthew. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 11 of chapter 21. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. I'll share a few words of introduction and then I'll prompt you when we get to our passage. Dr. Lynn Sweet is a professor of church history and he's also a futurist out of the Methodist tradition. And back in the mid-90s, he wrote a book called Faith Quakes. He dealt with the cultural shifts and changes that would rock the church and shake our faith. Today, I've taken the title of his book and used it as the title of the sermon, but I'm putting a twist on faith quakes because I am convinced that when Jesus makes an entrance into the culture, faith will shake the world. In the Christian liturgical calendar, today is Palm Sunday, as you've heard already. We also understand it as Passion Sunday. It's the date when Jesus entered Jerusalem for the final time. He was greeted with words of acclamation and praises and hosannas as he entered Jerusalem. But this day also marked his journey to the cross, hence his passion. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus had some unfinished business to take care of. We know that he spent time in Judea. We we know he spent time in Jericho. That's where he met Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus' life was changed and transformed in his encounter with Jesus. The Bible tells us in Luke's gospel there, the Son of Man has come to save what was lost. And then Jesus left there toward Jerusalem. In all three of the synoptic gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, there are passages that show Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem lifting his countenance toward Jerusalem. In the past, he would leave the city to continue to do ministry, but this would be different. In Matthew 20, we see some of the words that Jesus gave to his disciples, preparing them for what was to happen. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside, and he said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So he's preparing his disciples for what was to come. He knew they needed every bit of preparation that they could get. And now, verse 1 of chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus said to the disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks, if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others 
cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. The atmosphere has all of the makings of a parade. Jesus is given a royal welcome. People placed palm branches in their cloaks in front of Jesus as he rolled toward the whole, rode toward the holy city. They shouted, Hosanna, which means, God save us. It was an electric crowd. But then the mood of the crowd would change. You know the feeling. It's like when you're in a church service and then there's a hush and you can hear a pin drop. Or if you're into sports, it's like being at a big basketball game. And then the momentum shifts, and the underdog starts to win. Everybody is, as one, focused on the same thing. The mood of this crowd changed. A feeling of amazement or wonder or perhaps even fear comes over the crowd Matthew describes what was happening in almost scientific terms. We would say seismic terms. In the message version, Peter, Eugene Peterson says it like this. As he made his entrance into Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken. The message version, shaken. The NIV reads, stirred. The amplified version reads, trembling. And the New American Standard reads, agitated. The gospel writers are telling us that the whole city was shaken as if by seismic forces. The Greek word used here is seo, which is where we get our word seismic or seismograph, referencing earthquake activity. One writer even says it like this. Jerusalem, frozen with religious formalism and not socially emotive, was stirred with popular enthusiasm as by a mighty wind or an earthquake. Through the New Testament, this word refers to earthquakes and great fear and trembling when one is physically shaken or moved. Another form of the word refers how waves kicked up and the disciples were out on the boat and they were afraid of what was going to happen. Maybe Matthew is suggesting that the holy city is shaken to its foundations by the arrival of the anointed one, the Lord's Messiah. One person has caused motion in seismic proportions. Everyone is asking, who is this, really? I'm convinced that whether people believe in Jesus or not, that people are moved when he enters the room. All Jerusalem was affected by the presence of Jesus. Like the seismic waves move the earth's crust. 
or like one drop creates a ripple in the whole pond, or like a jet that goes past supersonic, breaks the sound barrier, and the waves are visible in the air. So let's explore this a little bit with some groundbreaking questions. And you could take some notes, personal reflection notes here as we walk through this. The first one, question is, how did people respond when Jesus made an entrance through the New Testament? How did people respond when Jesus enters the situation? Well, go back to his birth, and you'll see this happening. In Matthew 2, we find that even the powerful King Herod was troubled at Jesus' birth. Verse 3 reports, when King Herod heard this, meaning the wise men who were searching for the infant Jesus, the king was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Same word. So all Jerusalem was disturbed at his birth. When Jesus entered his hometown of Nazareth, he was rejected. The religious authorities were stirred up. They tried to kill him. He was rejected even in his own hometown. When Jesus healed on the Sabbath, the Pharisees plotted to kill him. When Jesus befriended tax collectors and sinners, again the religious authorities were highly disturbed. Jesus shook up the temple courts and threw out the money changers. When Jesus died on the cross, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks split into pieces. When Jesus rose from the dead, there was a great earthquake. So, at his birth, his presence caused a great stir. Now he comes again. This time he's riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, humble like a child. He stirred things up as an infant. Humble like a child riding in, stirs things up. He's gentle and humble in heart. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah. He will not quarrel or quiet cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not stuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. Though he entered this parade on Sunday, the crowd quickly changed. Praises and hosannas were replaced by crucify, crucify. Not only people were stirred when Jesus entered, but so was the creation moved with Jesus. It's amazing that also, although Israel rejected Jesus and the Roman authorities crucified him, creation always recognized him. During his life on earth, the waves obeyed him. Water turned to wine at his command. Fishes and bread multiplied at his touch. The atoms in the water solidified so that he could walk across it. And the wind ceased when he spoke to it. So it should come at no surprise that at Jesus' death, what a traumatic event it was for creation. The earth shook and trembled and shuddered at the death of its creator, for it instantly felt its loss. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, everyone in the city was stirred and moved, so much so that the collective question was, who is this? What about today? What about when Jesus makes an entrance today? You and I as the church know that God has called us as the church to be the incarnation on earth to speak the words of God. Jesus 
enters situations through the power of the Holy Spirit as we obey, as we do His work. What happens when Jesus makes an entrance today? Now, I would like to think that people would just be excited and would say, oh, the Christians are here, or look who's here, and we want to know more about why you do the things you do, why you say what you do. But often, people, Jesus is not so welcomed by people. Some graciously do welcome. How often do people at work or in school or on the ball field or in our neighborhoods ask, who is this when we walk in? And for me, that's a a wake-up call kind of question. I sometimes wonder if we have, as a church, allowed our traditions or religious preferences or comforts to create a more bland and tepid and benign Jesus, and people don't turn their heads when we walk in the room. Not that we are trying to gain attention or be like the Pharisees or that we are prideful, but there should be, as we imitate Jesus, as our attitudes are the same as that in Jesus Christ, as Paul writes in Philippians, there should be some head turn or a, who is this, or why are you saying that? Explain that to me. I want to know more about why you're different. There should be more of that when, when Christians are in the room. We must embrace a faith that quakes. That when Jesus enters the room through us, or the situation through us, that people are moved and stirred enough that they would ask, who is this? Who is this? And that we might have the opportunity to give them the reason for the hope that we have. The third question is, is very reflective for each individual person. How will you and I respond when Jesus stirs our soul? How do we respond? Do you know him? Revelation 3.20, the scripture says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them, dine with them, and they with me. Jesus knocking at the door of our souls. How do we respond when Jesus stirs our soul? God has created within each one of us a desire to know our Creator. God has placed eternity in the hearts of every single man, woman, and child. How do we respond when the Holy Spirit nudges our soul? There's a portion of an old sermon that stirs my soul. Maybe it will speak to you. It's called, That's My King. Maybe you've heard it online or read it. It was preached by the Reverend Shadrach Meshach Lockridge back in the 20th century. He was a well-known African-American preacher, started out in Texas, and ended up preaching many, many years in San Diego, California. My prayer is that these words would move your spirit. The Bible says he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. That's my king. David says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. No means of measure can define his limitless love. 
No far-seeing telescope can, in, can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast, immortally graceful, imperially powerful, and impartially merciful. That's my king. That's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's august or distinguished. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine in true theology. He's the cardinal necessity for spiritual religion. That's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. That's my king. Do you know him? My king is the key of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway to deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. My king, his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you that the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man try to explain him. You can't get him out of your mind, and you can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him. You can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out that they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. And Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't contain him. That's my king. He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about it that he had no predecessor. He'll have no successor. There was nobody before him. There was nobody who will be after him. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Praise the Lord. That's my king. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The glory is all his. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. And when you get through all the forevers, Amen. Do you know him? 
I hope you do. I hope you know him. He'll change your life. You'll never be the same. As we journey through this holy week, I pray that God would speak to your heart, that he would stir your soul, and that Christians, when we enter the room, people will say, who is this? I want to know more. Let's pray.